Again, my name is Lee Woodmancy, and I'm one of our elders here at Forefront. And uh, as we mentioned earlier, Lee Kemp and his family are all sick, and so uh, you get me instead of him. Um, so yeah, I just want to be uh, mindful of Lee and his family and um, actually the whole efforts of what we're doing here at the church. And so we're going to continue on in our series on spiritual disciplines. Um, and so we're going to dive into that. So here's what I want to say. The last three weeks, we have talked about the spiritual discipline of uh, Bible intake, so how to actually read your Bible in such a way that is beneficial. And then we talked about last week, or excuse me, two weeks ago, prayer and how to actually pray uh, effectively and to pray in such a way that is uh, honoring to God, but also understands what is demanded of us in our prayer. And then last week, we talked about worship. And so if you want to go listen to any of these, you can go check us out on Facebook. You'll be able to see all of it right there. Um, and today we're going to be talking about evangelism. And so for some of y'all, you might immediately just feel like, ugh, we're going to talk about the thing that if I'm a believer in Jesus, I know I'm supposed to do, but I don't really feel good about it. So I'm going to do my best to like help us out there, okay? So we're going to talk about evangelism. But before we get there, I do want to say that me and my wife, we're having a conversation about meals this week. And we're going to do some taco stuff. I got some avocados up here. I don't have a clue on when to tell if these are ripe or good or if it's the right time to use them. So I'm going to set these up here. And tonight, or excuse me, this uh, morning, whenever we're done, if you have any idea about how to tell whether an avocado is correct uh, to eat at this time or not, you come up here and see me, okay? Cool. All right. So that's just a personal note. <clears throat> Here's where we've been starting. We've been looking at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, where Paul says clearly to Timothy for us to discipline, or tells him to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And Lee, you've heard him say on more than one occasion that discipline comes from the word that we get gymnastics or gymnasium from. Well, I'm going to show it to you. Gymnazo is the word, okay? Gymnazo. That word in Greek means to exercise or to discipline. And so the whole point of what we've been trying to do over the last three weeks and then tonight or this morning is to get us to a point where we are doing the things that we know we ought to do. And you can even see just the icons on the screen. Um, we're doing a form check. If you're a believer in Jesus, there are certain things that we know we are expected to do by Jesus, that we are commanded to do. But frankly, a lot of us just either A, don't do them, if we're honest. B, don't do them well. Even though we know how to do it, we just don't do them well. Or C, maybe we've never really been taught well how to do these spiritual disciplines. Like reading your Bible and Bible intake and prayer and worship, which is more than just singing. And evangelism is one of those things as well. And so we're going to do a form check this morning. What we're going to do is I'm going to bring us to this point where we are getting to the point where we feel that we adequately know how we're supposed to do this. But I fully recognize that we are going to be incapable of doing that in one 50, 40-minute sermon this morning. It's just not going to happen, right? So what we're going to do over the next three or four weeks in February on Wednesday nights, we're going to focus on evangelism. We're going to talk about specific ideas. We're going to drive down deep on Wednesday nights, and we record all that. So if you can't come on Wednesday, you can listen to it after the fact. But here's the point. We want us to do this well, because this is something that is expected of us. It's commanded of us. So let's dive into this topic. What is evangelism? Let's start with some definitions so that we all know exactly what we're talking about. We're all on the same page. And here you go. 
Evangelism is the sharing of the message of salvation through Jesus. That's about as simplistic as I can make it. We have to share with words, not just actions, with words. Here's the first misconception that I'm just going to go ahead and dispel. How many of y'all have ever heard the quote from St. Francis of Assisi, this old saint, that says, at all times preach the gospel and when necessary use words? How many of you have heard that quote? Let me just tell you this. He never said that. There is no historical evidence that he actually said that. The first evidence that anyone was ever quoted as saying that, I believe, was from 1970. Okay? He never said that. Also, that statement is wrong. You get that, right? Go read Romans 7, 8, and 9. Go read that there's clearly the command for us to articulate the truths of the gospel. I can take the trash out for my neighbor every single week. I can rake their leaves. I can mow their lawn. I can give all sorts of good things to them, leave it on their doorstep, but never actually speak to them. And that person never actually knows that I'm a believer in Jesus. You must use your words to articulate the truth of the gospel. So evangelism then is just the sharing of the message verbally of salvation through Jesus, not through some other means, not through some other thing that you can just work your way into heaven. No, it's because of what Jesus has done, because there is a fountain filled with blood that is drawn from Emmanuel's veins. His death, his burial, and his resurrection, that's the means by which we are actually saved, not by you doing a whole bunch of good things. We tracking with that? So I want to give us a little bit more information since we've already thrown out one Greek word. He'll be the last one. Euangelion. Euangelion. That's the word for evangelism, for sharing the gospel in Greek. And this is just a really com- a simple compound word. And all it is is you, which means good, plus angelos, which is the word we get for angel or messenger. And so when you jam those together, you get a good message or good news. So here's the first thing that I want us to see. If you're a note taker, you're going to have plenty of stuff to write down today. Here's the very first thing I want you to write down. The message of the gospel is always good news. Always. It might be uncomfortable. It might be confrontational. It might be something that we don't feel confident in sharing in and of ourselves. But the content of the message of salvation through Jesus is always good news. If we miss this, I don't care how many reps you can do, you're missing out the most fundamental aspect of what the gospel is. Are you tracking with me? So before we dive into where we're going to be going today um, in detail with our text, I want to pray for us, and then we're going to dive into where we're heading, yeah? Can we do that? All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you that I have the opportunity to be able to come and preach uh, this morning about Uh, what it means to share the gospel well and what it means to think about the gospel rightly. And Father, I pray that you would be honored by um, the way in which we even think about what we think about the gospel. I pray that all the things that we've done leading up to right now with worship through singing and worship through hearing the word read aloud over us, and as we dive into hearing the word taught for us, God, I pray that you would be honored and that you would change our hearts for those of us who are believers so that we might more accurately walk in relationship to you. And God, I pray also for those who are in this room who are not believers and anyone who may be listening after the fact or live online, God, I pray that they would hear that the message of the 
Salvation that is offered through the death of Jesus is, in fact, good news for them. Not just generally, but for them. As is my custom, I would also ask that you would pray for me individually while we're doing this. So if you would, take a moment and pray that I would say nothing that's out of harmony with the gospel, and what I say would be clear and would be beneficial. If you would, take a moment and pray that for me. Father, I thank you that we have this opportunity. I thank you that I individually have this opportunity. But God, I pray that I would recognize the seriousness of this conversation and I would recognize the the clarity in which I need to speak. But Father, I also recognize that I need that from you. And so I ask right now that you would give me unction to be able to speak rightly and to be able to articulate clearly and winsomely the truths of the gospel so that we would be edified and those who need to hear the message of salvation could actually accurately respond to what it is that you've done for us. So, Father, we give you this time, and we pray all this in your son's name. Amen. All right, so here's what we're going to do. <clears throat> we're going to be flying through some stuff. Uh, what we did before we started this series on spiritual disciplines is we were working our way through the Gospel of John, and we made it through John chapter 4. Right, So we did about eight weeks, I think, and we got through four chapters. And so we took a break at the beginning of the year to kind of talk about these things. And then next week, I think we're going to return back to the Gospel of John. And so what I want to do is I want to bridge the gap. We've already talked about John chapter 3 and John chapter 4. So let's look at it in light of evangelism. And here's what I say. John 3 and 4 gives us a great example of how we ought to approach evangelism. As we see what Jesus actually does in his ministry, how he relates to people, how he talks to them, how he engages in theological conversations, I think there is great um, benefit for us being able to see exactly how Jesus does that. And then next week, we've already got a run and start from John 3 and 4. Yeah, see? There's some thought behind this. Here's what I'd say. In John chapter 3, we see this Nicodemus character show up. This random religious leader who's a leader of the Pharisees shows up in the middle of the night to have a conversation with Jesus. And there's some shady things about the circumstances of him showing up when he does. But Jesus has a really loving conversation with him um, that, frankly, for people who grew up in church, might make some of us feel either uncomfortable or it might make us feel a little bit prideful. So we're going to look at that conversation in John chapter 3. And in John chapter 4, Jesus has this conversation with this Samaritan woman who's at a well, the woman at the well. And she's there getting water at a time of day that you don't ever go to get water. And the reason for that is because she's a bit of a social outcast. She's either like a serial divorcee or she's someone who has had multiple marriage-like relationships and culturally was just shunned. And we see Jesus having a conversation with her right then. So what I'm going to do is we're going to look at this, uh, these two chapters, not in totality, but we're going to pull from it five lessons. So again, if you're a note taker, we've got five lessons. Lessons are going to be over the next five slides. It's going to be pretty clear where we're heading, right? Are we tracking with that? Got to get a north-south from everybody, make sure we're all on the same page? All right, rock on. So here's the first lesson. Here's the easiest one right out the gate. Jesus meets people where they are. Jesus meets people where they are. I've already mentioned about Nicodemus showed up in the middle of the night. Let's look at John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. 
This man came to see Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, you're going to show up in the middle of the night, but then you're going to throw out this honorific term of rabbi, teacher. Hey, dog, you're like, I've got office hours, and I'm here all day. You could have come up at any other time, but you're showing up in the middle of the night. Jesus doesn't blow him up for that, does he? He goes on to say, Rabbi, we know it's obvious that you're from God. Because there's no way that any man could do the things you do unless God's with him. And again, I would just insert, Jesus could have said, yeah, dude, you could have told me this like seven hours ago when it was daylight. But he doesn't. He meets him where he is. And then later on with the woman at the well, we see that Jesus has this conversation with this woman, even though like the circumstances are really kind of shady. So here's the first thing. Jesus meets people where they are, He doesn't reject any of those who seek him. Jesus does not reject those who truly seek him. Now, we can say whatever we would like to about Nicodemus coming in the middle of the night, and we can say whatever we want about Jesus putting himself in a position to have a conversation with the woman at the well, but we can't say that Jesus, like, blows them up for the circumstances in which they show up. I mean, I even think of the story of Zacchaeus, you know, short guy. Can't see over the crowd, so homeboy climbs in a tree so he can see Jesus. And, like, Jesus, like, meanders through the crowd and, like, keeps heading towards that tree and, like, hey, man, I'm coming to your house. Come on down. Like, Jesus meets people where they are, and he doesn't reject, reject those who actually seek him. And if you want that evidence, you can just look there in John 3 and John chapter 4. So here's the pattern for us. The lesson is that Jesus meets people where they are, And then how do we do that? How do we meet people where they are? We don't reject people who are actually asking honest questions and seeking Jesus. Here's the next thing I want us to see about meeting people where they are. Jesus doesn't excuse sinful activity. He doesn't excuse sinful activity. I think for us, a lot of times, one of the big barriers for believers in Jesus, um, whenever we are sharing the truth of the gospel with somebody, is we think, ah, man, but like, if I'm going to talk to that person who's obviously a prostitute, like, it's going to come up. Maybe that's too far of a, a conversation for you. One of the things I love doing with college students is going on beach reach. And so we would go uh, to South Padre Island in Texas or go to Panama City Beach in Florida. And you would go and give drunk people rides in a van, talk to them about Jesus, and invite them to go eat pancakes the next morning when they sobered up. I would gladly take a group of us to go do beach reach and talk to a bunch of drunk college students even though I know hey, you're kind of drunk right now. But you notice that Jesus isn't put off by that, but he also doesn't excuse that sinful activity. I think for us, we we think in uh, like diametrically opposed ideas. We either have to fully accept who they are and everything that comes along with them, or we absolutely reject them out of hand, and there's no middle ground. Well, there's absolutely middle ground. There's a place where you can absolutely not agree with their sinful activity, but yet still engage with people. Novel idea, right? Jesus does this exact thing. Whenever you look in John chapter 4, let's read this. John 4, 16 through 18. Jesus, speaking to this woman, said to her, Hey, you want to have this conversation? Cool. Go call your husband and have him come to us. Verse 17. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, Yeah, I know, guy said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. So what you said is true. Like, I know the game we're playing. He doesn't excuse it, 
but he actually engages with her. He meets her where she is. We tracking with that? And here's the last thing that I'll say under this point. Jesus points to truth. Jesus will point to truth in the middle of not excusing their sinful activity and in the middle of not rejecting them on the terms in which they showed up to him. If you want evidence of this, go look in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Let's look at John 3, 14 and 15. This is after like the closing part of the conversation, after we've heard Nicodemus say, man, I'm not understanding how we're going to do any of this. How is it possible for me to be born again? Pick it up in verse 14 of chapter 3. Jesus, after he's explained some of these, says uh, to this leader of the, Pharisee, uh, the Jews, this Pharisee, this guy who knew the Old Testament very well, he reaches all the way back to the Old Testament and he says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, from Numbers 21, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. I'm not going to excuse your sinful activity, but I'm also going to point to something so much better by sharing truth. He does the exact same thing with the woman at the well in chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. After having this conversation about, uh, so you're telling me you're better than our father Joseph? Is that what you're saying, Jesus? Pick it up in verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of the water of this well will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. That water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. These are some hard conversations and these are some difficult situations, but we notice that Jesus always meets people where they are. So here's the question I have for us. How frequently do we do that? How frequently do you actually accept people at the terms in which you had a conversation with them in the situation they're in? And maybe it might be a little difficult to kind of put yourself in a position where you've talked to someone who's clearly drunk but needs hope in their life. I couldn't tell you how many conversations I've had at Beach Reach with students that um, they're there just partying that week because every other part of their life, the other 51 weeks of the year, are just trash. Everything's falling, down, uh, falling apart around them. But if I castigate that person in that moment, I won't even have an opportunity to speak truth into their life. Let me ask this question this way. How quick are you to decide for someone else that they won't accept Jesus? How quick are you to decide for that person that they're not going to accept Jesus and so you don't ever say a word because of the situation they find themselves in? This student is drunk. He's clearly not going to believe, so I'm just not going to share. What right do you have to decide for someone else eternal realities? Shame on us. I pray God would forgive me when I do that. Whenever I take a, a moment to look at somebody and make a snap judgment and say, ah, that person, it's not going to be worth my time. They're not going to believe, uh, so I'm just not going to share. Well, effectively, what I've just done is I've not given them an opportunity to even respond to the truth of the gospel, and I have decided for them in this moment, you don't get to hear the truth of Jesus and the salvation he brings. Shame on us. But if we are getting to a point where we recognize that the message of the gospel is always good news and we actually feel equipped and excited to actually share that message, we're not going to make that snap judgment. We're going to make every, every possibility is going to be made available for that person to respond to the truth of the gospel. And I think we see Jesus doing that by meeting people where they are.
He could have blew Nicodemus up in the middle of the night. He could have blew this woman up at the well, at the well and he didn't. He could have, and he didn't. So that's lesson number one. Jesus meets people where they are. For our note takers, here's your second lesson. Jesus listens to those he speaks with. I'm talking about men out here. Men, we do this. We make a snap judgment about someone. We recognize where they are. We know what's going on in their life, or so we perceive. And so I already know everything I need to know about you in order to pan out or plan out how the rest of this conversation is going to go. And so we don't actually engage with listening to people. So let's dive a little bit deeper. How does Jesus listen to those he speaks with? He accepts honest answers or honest questions. He will listen to your honest question. And I'll go ahead and give you a hint, even some of your dishonest ones. Even the ones that are meant to try to throw Jesus off the trail so that the conversation gets off of this God stuff. He'll even engage with those conversations. Look in John chapter 3, verse 2. So after Nicodemus, show, Nicodemus shows up in the middle of the night, hey, Rabbi, we know you're from God. There's no way you could do this if you weren't from God. So what's the deal? So Jesus answers his question. Talks about this being born again. Verse 4, Nicodemus says, how can a man be born again when he is old? Come on, Jesus, what are you talking about? And so Jesus gives him an answer. He doesn't quite get that answer, so in verse 9 he says, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be true? How, are, how am I, an old man, supposed to go into my mother and be born again? You're, you're talking nonsense, Jesus. I think Jesus knew that Nicodemus knew what he was doing. I think he knew there was some real confusion. I think he knew there was also some, maybe uh, a little bit of dishonest tendency to try to throw Jesus off the trail, but he still answered his questions. We see the exact same thing happen in chapter 4, verses 19 and 20 with the woman at the well. After Jesus talks about her husband's situation, she wants to change the topic. Cool. Let's pick it up there in verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Not too far off of rabbi, right? Same thing. Sir, I perceive you're a, prof you're a prophet. And if you're a prophet, answer me this. Guy, riddle me this. Verse 20. Our fathers, a Samaritan, Worshipped at this mountain. Pointing at this one right there. There in Samaria. <clears throat> Our fathers worshipped at this mountain, but you say, you full-blooded Jews, you say Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Is that a good faith question? Probably not. But it's a real question that has real ramifications. And so what does Jesus do? He interacts with her and he answers that question. He actually listens to what they're saying and he doesn't just blow them up on the spot and give them what they need so I can punch out and be out of here. Are you tracking with that? That's distinctively different than how I normally operate, to be honest. So how else does Jesus listen to those he speaks with? He actually provides thoughtful answers that require you to think. He actually provides thoughtful answers that requires us to actually think. If you look in John chapter 3, verse 3, 5, and 10 through 15, whenever Nicodemus asks those questions, Jesus doesn't just give him a nice, short, flowery little answer that they can just write down and move on. Like, oh, I got it. We're good to go. Nor does he do that with the woman at the well. Oh, you're asking a question about which mountain? Let me tell you a secret, lady. Um, there's going to come a day when this mountain, that mountain, it doesn't matter. What God's looking for is those who worship him truly, and those who worship him truly worship in spirit and in truth. And 
knowing that she doesn't have any more ammunition about how to dissuade Jesus from having this conversation, that it basically just ends there. And Jesus goes on to have a conversation with his disciples, and she runs off and goes and tells everyone in the village. But here's the point. Jesus actually listens to those whom he speaks with. I like to anticipate what people's answers are going to be so I can be prepared in that conversation. How many of you, especially men, can relate to that? I actually want to anticipate what your answer is. That way, the next time I get a chance to speak, it's just going to roll off the tongue, and I'm going to sound precise and be accurate. Let me tell you this. About a month and a half ago, I went to an audiologist. I lost a lot of hearing when I was in the military in this left ear, and so for years I've been telling people, this is my bad ear and this is my good ear. Well, what I found out is this is my really bad ear and this is my okay ear. I can't hear nearly as well as I thought. And let me tell you, it is a dangerous thing to assume what someone's answer is when you actually don't even hear them. And I'm talking like audiologically, audiology, through my ears. I can't even hear properly, right? How much more so if you're not even trying to listen and you're just assuming what their answer is going to be so that you can make much of your own answers whenever you get to speak? I think it, I can't remember if it was like Ray Lewis or Shannon Sharp. It was some NFL player, and I remember this quote floating around, and it's very honest. It says, there's a huge difference between listening for comprehension and listening so you can respond. Do you think Jesus was just listening so he could have his chance Pick up on that social cue, listen for somebody's voice and their pitch to rise a little bit so he knows it's his turn to go? Or do you think Jesus was actually listening to their answers and then providing a thoughtful answer that was going to challenge them? Personally, I think it's that second one. And the simple question for us is, do we do that? I think a lot of times we rely on short, pithy answers, but let's just be honest. Simple answers about very difficult things are rarely correct, and correct answers to very difficult things are rarely short. Are you tracking with me? Jesus has this conversation with the woman at the well. He shows up. His boys go to get food, and the next time we see them is when they came back with food. There's like a dozen of those guys. How quick do you think a dozen dudes in the middle of you know, first century A.D. Judea, how quickly do you think they came back with this food? Probably not quickly. They may have been there for an hour having this conversation. And Jesus was ready to engage with her with difficult answers to difficult questions that were honest and real. And he accepted her where she was and actually listened. Do we do the same thing? Write that down. Think about it later. Here's our third lesson. Not only are we supposed to meet people where we are, not only are we supposed to listen to their actual answers so that we can respond correctly, but this is what we see Jesus doing, is he shared hard truth. And we've already talked about that a little bit, but let's dive into that a little bit more. Specifically what I mean is Jesus confronted false ideas and lies. He actually goes directly at their statements because he listened to them. He heard what they had to say. Okay, cool. Since you brought that up, let's talk about that a little bit. You can see Jesus do this with John, uh, or with Nicodemus in John 3, 4, right? Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can a man enter a second time into his mother's womb when he is, uh, and, and then be born? And then Jesus answers, hey man, you got it all wrong. You got to be born again from above. You totally missed it, dude. 
And then a little bit later in John chapter 3, verse 9, says, how can all of these things be? How can I be born from above? And then Jesus tells him in John chapter 3, verse 10, uh, you're a teacher of Israel, guy. I thought you knew this. Like, I thought it should have been obvious for you. You're someone who should have known better. False idea. But since you obviously don't get it, let me give you some Old Testament. You remember when Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness and everyone was healed? The same exact thing is going to happen to me. I'm going to be lifted up. Come now. I'm going to be lifted up. And then you're going to be healed. He does the same thing with the woman at the well in chapter 4, verses 13 and 15. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks water, you want to talk about this water? You think this is what's most important, this well? Anyone who drinks out of that water, well, no matter how good it is, you're going to need to drink again. But I'm going to give you something that's going to last forever. And not only is it going to satisfy you now, it's going to lead to eternal life. He doesn't let them sit in this false narrative of how they think life actually works. He corrects it. It's not always easy. But here's the other thing, and this I think is probably one of the most important for us. Jesus is not dissuaded by discomfort. Nicodemus shows up, Rabbi! Let me, let me game recognize his game. I'm a Pharisee. I know teachers. Rabbi. He's implying, like, we know who each other are. You know who I am. And when Jesus is confronted by Nicodemus with these questions, he doesn't let his position hold sway over him. In fact, in verse 9 and 10, he says, Dude, you're a teacher of Israel, Rabbi. How do you not get this? Do you think that was something that would have made any one of us uncomfortable if we were in that same situation? Yeah. What about the woman at the well? In chapter 4, 11, and then later in 20, she says, Sir, you ain't got nothing to drink. You got nothing to draw the water out. How are you going to do this, right? Uh, the well's deep. Where do you get that living water, man? Come on. What are you talking about? And then later on, the conversation about her husbands and everything else that comes up there, we, get, we see her get blown up one more time by Jesus calling her out on that. And then she says, hey, I perceive that you're a prophet. What about this sticky theological question that I know trips everyone else up? How many of us, in a conversation with someone about God, have been tripped up by some theological question you did not know how to answer? And if you're not raising your hand, it's either because you've never engaged in these conversations or you're lying. Because if you ever have engaged in these conversations, you've been tripped up probably. I think for a lot of us, what we need to see is that being, discomfort, uh, being uncomfortable in a situation doesn't mean we don't share. It means that we have to rely on us having been uh, equipped and also excited to share the truth of the gospel. Because if you have that, I don't know if discomfort's going to dissuade you no more than it did Jesus. Let me say it this way. I think this might be one of the most important things for us to hear. If you've thought about sharing the gospel and you've been made uncomfortable by that, let me help you. The gospel is naturally, innately, in its very own nature, it is naturally confrontational. The gospel at its core is confrontational. And you're sitting there thinking, well, I thought it was always good news, and we're talking about life. Yeah, but who are you telling this message of life being made available to? 
You're telling it to someone who is dead and doesn't think they're dead. You tell me that's not confrontational? Hey, Winston, I know you think you knocked it out of the park last week, but bro, let me tell you, you kind of didn't. Oh, yeah, I did. Well, let me ask the crowd, and everyone's like, oh, no, no, for real, you're like, some bad. Just because he is persuaded that what he thought was correct, even though it's not, and I tell him that, that is naturally confrontational. How many of us fear sharing the gospel because we don't want there to be conflict? It's going to happen. And if you misunderstand the nature of the gospel, you misunderstand that it is naturally confrontational. Now, to be clear, don't be a jerk. That doesn't give you license to be a jerk. Oh, well, it's confrontationally, uh, confrontational naturally, so I might as well just you know, lay into this person and tell them they're going to hell and their lifestyle doesn't match what Jesus told them, right? And pick up my Bible and smack them with it, right? No. Why would you do that? That's dumb. Call it dumb. That's, that's dumb. Don't do that. However, if it's naturally confrontational at its core, don't be afraid of it. Because the message of the gospel is always good news. Always. It's always good news. Let me say it this way. Um, it's good news for those who are dying and desperately need it, but it's also good news for you. It's good news for us if you're a believer in Jesus. So I want you to be excited about sharing it. Should I be excited about running into confrontation? No. We call that person like a sociopath or something, right? Don't be a sociopath. But don't be a coward either. Don't be a coward. Here's our fourth lesson. I'm going to try to fly through these. This one is very similar to the second point that we made, but I want to blow through it. Jesus actually addresses real needs. He addresses real needs. Here's where it shows some similarity to our second point earlier about Jesus listening to others. He satisfies the intellectual questions that are brought to him. Nicodemus, this teacher, this cat knows some things. Hey, man, like, how is this possible? You can look in John 3, 9. How is it to be that these things are going to happen? And Jesus gives him an answer. Now, that answer is thoughtful, and it requires deeper thought later on, but he answers it. We see that same thing happen with the lady, with the woman at the well. Jesus, you're telling me that uh, that mountain's the right one and this one isn't. Which one's right? Cool. You asked the question. There's going to be a day neither one of those mountains matter. Spirit and truth. That's what matters. He actually satisfies their intellectual questions. And do not mishear me. Having intellectual questions about the nature of faith in the Bible, those are real needs that need to be satisfied. Anyone who says, oh, if you're a believer in Jesus, you just go on faith, you check your head at the door, and then you just read the Bible and believe what it says. That is dumb. I have very good reasons for believing the things that I believe about what this Bible teaches. To then chuck all that junk out because, oh, faith is what matters. No, faith and using the brain that God gave you and the faculties of logic and rhetoric and being able to perceive what the truth actually is is God ordained? If people have actual questions, answer them. Maybe this one might be a little difficult for us, but here's the next one. He meets our emotional longings as well. 
All the dudes in the room are like, yeah, sure, cool. Nudge your wife and like, yeah, he sure does, doesn't he? How do you think Nicodemus felt after Jesus had this confrontation with him? Hey, man, you're a teacher of Israel. Do you think he uh, felt really good about himself? Because what I would say is he probably didn't feel so great about himself, but I guarantee Jesus put him on a path so that he would understand more rightly who he is in light of who God is. But we really see this with the woman at the well. This woman at the well had all these husbands, and the guy she's living with now isn't her husband. There's just all this emotional baggage that she brings. I mean, she shows up at the well in the middle of the day when it's crazy hot, when you're not supposed to be getting water because it's hard work. The reason she was there is because no one else was. Incidentally, that's also the reason why Jesus was there, to be there, to have a conversation with her one-on-one. And when Jesus is there, he listens to her, he meets her where she is, he satisfies her questions, he actually comes to a point where he shares hard truth. And what we see from later on in verse 25 and 26, let's turn there. After Jesus has this conversation about worshiping in God, worshiping God in spirit and truth, the woman said to him, verse 25, I know that the Messiah, who is called the Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Hey, what you're saying about spirit and truth is good, um, and worshiping rightly, yeah, that's good. But I know when the Messiah shows up, I'm going to really find out. Well, verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. You're talking about the Messiah, the the Christ who's going to show you all things? Let's talk some more. And the thing that she says to all the folks in the town that she was avoiding, intentionally trying to stay away from, you've got to see this man. He told me everything about myself. Hey, I know the Christ when he shows up, he's going to tell us all things. And then she goes and tells everyone, hey, you're not going to believe this. This guy told me all things. Of course, because he's the Messiah. He changes not just her theological perspective and the way she looked at the world, but he actually makes it so that she goes from being ashamed and disgraced among her people to someone who is now unafraid and restored. She goes from being ashamed and disgraced among the people that she lives with to now being unafraid and restored. Tell me that's not emotional needs that are being met. Jesus does that every time. A.W. Tozer is an author. Um, he wrote a book called Knowledge of the Holy. It's the most influential book in my life outside of Scripture. And he has a quote when he's talking about the mystery of God. And this is what he says about addressing the mystery of God and intellectual questions and emotional longings. This is what he says. God gives us answers to our questions. Certainly not all of them, but he gives us enough to satisfy our minds and ravish our souls. He gives you enough to satisfy your mind and ravish your soul. How frequently do we want to consider our answers doing both of those things? Answering their intellectual longings and their emotional longings. Because that's what we see Jesus doing. Here's the last lesson. Jesus expected a response. He absolutely expected a response to be made. Um, Let me just blow through this. He calls all of us to change our erroneous ideas. We've already talked about that with Nicodemus. How can it be? And he answers it. Well, I still don't get it. And he answers it again. Woman at the well, same thing. Let me give you an example. How many of us have ever been confronted with the question, why would a loving God send somebody to hell? 
How many of us have heard some permutation of that question one way or another? How many of us feel really confident that we have a good answer for that? I feel like I do, but it ain't going to be easy, that's for sure. <laughs> it ain't going to be fun. Let me give you a better way to think about it. That's not even the right question. I'll answer that question. We'll get to it, but let me give you a different question first. How can a fully, holy, just God allow anyone into heaven? That is a better idea to consider. And what Jesus does with this woman at the well and with Nicodemus is he calls them to change what they thought about the world. Why can a loving God, or how can a loving God send anyone to hell? Hey, great question. We'll answer that. Let's get to the other one first. How can a just God send anyone to heaven, allow anyone in heaven? Answer that first, and then we'll work our way back to that. He doesn't allow them to just stay mired in this bad idea about the way the, work, uh, the, way the world works. And then lastly, on this note, he calls us to change our sinful activity. Imagine that. Now, he absolutely accepted these people as they were when they came to him, but he didn't allow them to stay that way. And you can see that with Nicodemus. Hey, man, you're supposed to be a teacher of Israel. Sends him on his way. But the one thing I want you to write down in that note is look, go look at John chapter 19, verse 39. In fact, let's just turn there. John chapter 19, verse 39 says this. This is right after <clears throat> Jesus is crucified and after he's hanging on the cross and he gets his, his side pierced. Let's pick it up in verse 38. And after these things, the crucifixion, Jesus is really dead. He's straight up dead. No breath in him. Dead for real. Get what I'm saying? He's really dead. Verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate, who was the governor, gave him permission. And so he came and took away his body off the cross. Verse 39. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, hmm, John chapter 3, came bearing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And so they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen cloths and the spices and the burial custom of the Jews. And this teacher of Israel, Rabbi, game recognizes game. Rabbi, he gets blown up. And the next time we run into Nicodemus after the resurrection, urging me after the crucifixion, is he's the one who's helping Joseph take Jesus' body off the cross and bury him. That's life change. Completely reoriented his life. The woman at the well, we can go look in chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, a little bit following, but we've already hit on that. She goes and tells anyone who will listen, hey, I know you think this is like a weird situation for me to be telling you, but let me tell you, this guy told me everything about my life. And let's just fast forward a little bit in John chapter 4. I do want to read this. John chapter 4. That's Luke. That's why I can't read it. So in John chapter 4, what we see there is that the disciples come back and they say, hey, Jesus, we got the food. You're going to eat? And then we see in verse 30, and, uh, 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. She goes from this state of ashamed and being disgraced to being unafraid and restored. So here's the question I have for you. Do we believe that people can actually change and respond to the gospel? Because if you don't, 
I don't think you're going to be very well equipped or excited to share the truth of the gospel of the good news. Where the Spirit of God and the Word of God are active, salvation can happen. Neither one of those things depend on you. Yes, you're the messenger who is speaking, but you're not the one who regenerates somebody's heart. Go read John chapter 3 with this conversation with Nicodemus. God's the one who does that. Can you be faithful to share accurately? Yes, you should. But where the Spirit of God and the Word of God are active, salvation can happen. So, what do we do with this? This is where we're going to wrap up. What do we do then? It's our five lessons. We meet people where they are. We listen to others when they speak. We share hard truths. We address real needs. And we expect a response. So, respond. That's the same thing that happens up here every Sunday. Every Sunday, either me or Lee or Justin or Mark or whoever it is that's preaching up here, we give you a chance to respond to the things that we've seen on the screens, on the page, and coming out of this dude's mouth. We have given you a chance to respond. But if you're not a believer in Jesus, this is kind of hard, or so we might think. We respond all the same. We change our erroneous ideas. We change the way we're living. We start to reorient our life towards Jesus and away from ourselves. Are we tracking with that? Here's the thing. When it comes to evangelism, I think a lot of us are fearful that we don't have the timing right. I tell college students all the time, you sat next to this student in your class for four weeks and you haven't shared the gospel with them yet because you're thinking, ah, I don't know them all that well. I need to get to know them a little bit better, and then I'll share the gospel with them. Cool. Well, you know what happens after about four weeks from that, and now we're eight weeks into the semester? I'll ask them, hey, did you ever share the gospel with that guy? And a lot of times their answer is, no, man, now it's kind of weird. I've known him for eight weeks, and I've never mentioned Jesus. And then the next thing I'm going to say is, hey, can I tell you about the most important thing in my life eight weeks after I met you? kind of sense does that make? I think for most of us, we're really worried about missing our window. The joke with avocados is that you never know when these things are ripe. You get into it too early, and it's tough, and it doesn't work all that great. It's useless. You wait like 30 minutes later, and now it's bad, right? Here's my fear. We approach evangelism and sharing the truth of the gospel with others like we approach getting ripe avocados. There's this narrow window, and man, if I miss it, hey, I missed it, sorry. Just throw it away. That avocado's bad. That conversation's not going to happen. My window for sharing truth, I missed it. Here's what I want us to do. Don't let the stereotype of a joke about avocados be the way that we approach sharing the good news of Jesus and him offering salvation. If you've never responded, now's the perfect time. Yesterday would have been better. Tomorrow, who knows? But right now, you can respond. How long did Jesus spend getting to know Nicodemus and this woman at the well before he started sharing hard truths? I mean, like, they immediately get into it. So we can't use that excuse. Well, I need to know them first. I need to really learn their name. Yeah, you should learn their name. 
but you should also share Jesus with them. So if you've never done that, let me give you the very simple way that I want us to be able to think about the gospel, and here it is, the gospel in four parts. Winston's going to come up. Here's how you can share the gospel. God is holy. He's perfect. He's created all things. Who is God? He's the creator of everyone and everything. What is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but we belong to God. These are catechisms that we teach our children. These are simple truths that go deep. God is holy. And you're not. You have sin in your life. Ephesians 1 says you were dead in your sins and trespasses. You followed the course of the world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirits that work in the sons of disobedience, and you follow your own lusts uh, lust of your flesh. You are dead. And that's bad news. Here's the good news. Christ has acted on our behalf. If God is holy and I am not, then I'm hosed. I need someone else to come be righteous and holy for me. And that's what Jesus did. He lived a perfect life, and he died the death that you deserve to pay for your sin. And that's great news. But hear me rightly, it is not enough. We must respond to that message of salvation, that there is, in fact, forgiveness, that there can, in fact, be salvation. So here's my question. Have you done that? If you're a believer in Jesus, the most appropriate response for you tonight or for this morning is maybe to just stand and worship and sing the truths that we're going to sing. If you're a believer in Jesus and you're not walking with the Lord and you're having a hard time with relationally with Jesus, then maybe you just sit and pray, but you respond all the same. And if you're not a believer in Jesus and all these things that I've been talking about, how Jesus accepts people where they are and he actually listens to them and that he does in fact share hard truth and meets needs and that he expects a response. If you're sitting there saying, like, I need to do that, well, then come have a conversation with me. I'm going to be right down here. No one's going to make you feel weird. No one's going to make it awkward for you. Let's just have a conversation about what response looks like. Every one of us are given an opportunity to do this. This morning, and if you're a believer in Jesus, every one of us always has an opportunity to share this with someone else. Let's pray, and then we'll respond. Father, I pray that we would be brought to a point where we would be equipped well to answer these questions about how to do evangelism, but that we would also be excited about sharing the good news of salvation that comes through Jesus. So God, I pray right now for those of us who are called by your name, God, I pray that we would respond in a way that is honoring to you by worshiping you or repenting. For those of us who don't know you yet, God, I pray that we would be brought to a point where we see the truth of what we've talked about this morning and that we can respond right now and be forgiven of our sin. God, I pray that you would bring us to a point of repentance for all of us. And if it's repentance for the first time, then we give you the praise and the glory for that. And we want to look to you as the one who is the author and the perfecter of our faith, and we trust in you. So, Father, I pray that you would give us the boldness to respond however it is that you're leading. We pray all this in your son's name. Winston's going to play this song. He's going to give us time to respond. If you need to come and talk to me, if you need to come up here and pray, if you need to just sit and have a conversation, then do that. Let's not miss this chance to respond. You respond however.